Let's be honest, few humans enjoy meetings and many feel trapped in meetings. As leaders, we don't want to burden those we lead, but meetings can seem to do that more often than not. We wanted to address the pain of meetings through the Meetings with Saints library. Here we have 15 plus presentations dedicated to improving the meetings we run. We have experts in the field addressing topics like getting people involved in meetings, staying on task, dealing with conflict in meetings, and a ton more. We'd love you to explore the full Meetings with Saints library over 14 days at no cost to you. You can do this by visiting leadingsaints.org 14. That's leadingsaints.org 14. We'll also give you access to all of our virtual libraries that educate about other leadership topics. It's really good stuff. So visit leadingsaints.org 14 or click the link in the show notes. Before we jump into the content of this episode, I kind of feel it's important that I introduce myself. Now, many of you have been around a long time. You're well familiar with my voice and the, with Leading Saints as an organization. But if you're not, well, my name is Kurt Frankham, and I am the Executive Director of Leading Saints and the podcast host. Now, Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through, well, content creation like this podcast and many other resources at leadingsaints.org. And uh, we don't act like we have all the answers or uh, know exactly what a leader should do or not do, but we like to explore the concepts of leadership, the science of leadership, what people are researching about leadership, and see how we can apply them to a Latter-day Saint world. So here we go. The following episode is a throwback episode, one that was published previously and was extremely popular. To see the details of when this was originally published, see the show notes. Enjoy this throwback episode. Now, in this episode, I talk with Matthew Dix. Now, this is a unique guest. Uh, not very often do we have non-Latter-day Saints on the podcast, which not that we're trying to keep them out of the podcast, but <laughs> I'm always looking for a way to include them. But Matthew, I actually became familiar with him through the Art of Manliness podcast. I've interviewed uh, Brett McKay on on this podcast. I think I call him McKay in this, uh, in this interview, but nonetheless. And uh, he interviewed Matthew Dix, and that led me to Matthew's podcast, which is Speak Up. And uh, I've loved the podcast. It's one I, I listen to. I never miss an episode because he talks about storytelling and how to be an effective storyteller, especially when you're public speaking, especially when you're you know talking at church or bearing your testimony. And how do you involve story in that? And how do you do it effectively that it actually touches and connects with the hearts and minds of those listening and inspires them to change, inspires them to be a better person and promotes vulnerability and unity in your ward or stake, right? So I wanted to get Matthew Dix on this uh, podcast and jump in to how do we tell more effective stories when we're speaking in church or when we're teaching a lesson and we have a great story that's going to illustrate a point or 
that's going to impact others that listen to it. And so I, uh, I've read his book and it's fantastic. I listen to his podcast and he gives great tips. And so I thought this is the place. And so talks about some fantastic tips. Let's just get to it. Telling stories. They're such a powerful leadership principle. If we can tell stories, we can motivate people and we can move organizations forward. So here's my interview with Matthew Dix. opportunity to connect with Matthew Dix across the country. How are you, Matthew? I'm very good. Thanks for having me. Good. Now, do you go by Matthew or Matt or? Matt is fine. Okay. I'll go with Matt then. Cool. And you're the author of uh, Storyworthy, which uh, is the subtitle of Engage, Teach, Persuade, and Change Your Life Through the the Power of Storytelling. And this is a book I picked up. I actually heard you on the Art of Manliness podcast. Um, McKay over there, I've actually interviewed him. He's a a fellow Latter-day Saint. And so I got him on the podcast as well. But Uh, That's where I first heard of it. And I dove into the book and loved it. Uh, So maybe put you into context, like what's your general background and and what led you to write a a book about storytelling? Sure. That's always a hard question for me. You know, what do you do for a living? And, you know, (laughs) what's your background? Because it's weird. I'm an elementary school teacher. So that is the job that forces me to get up in the morning. I've been doing that for 20 years now. In addition to teaching, I'm a writer. So I published novels before I published Storyworthy. So I published four novels, and I have another one coming out this year. And I'm a storyteller. So I stand on stages all over the world now, and I tell stories. And what I do now a lot is teaching storytelling to anybody, really, human beings and corporations and religious institutions and hospitals and churches and universities. Basically, every person that you can imagine has started to figure out the value of storytelling. Nice. And so that aspect of my job, the the teaching storytelling, that eventually became the book. That's essentially, if you did a week of storytelling instruction with me, I envisioned the book would be worth a week of storytelling instruction. That was the goal. Nice. Yeah. And it was fantastic read. I I very much enjoyed it. Um, So before we jump into storytelling, I always, whenever I have a guest on who's uh, not a Latter-day Saint, I always have to ask them, have you had any weird interactions with us, like missionaries knocking at your door or a neighbor (laughs) that does anything weird? Anything come to mind? No, I mean, I was homeless for a period in my life, and I was rescued off the streets, essentially, by a family of born-again Christians, people who I hired to work at the McDonald's that I was managing for a time. And so they found out that I was living in my car and feeling as hopeless as I've ever felt in my life, and they basically insisted that I come and live with them. And so that was wonderful, and they tried to save me. You know, they... (laughs) They started bringing me to church. They actually wanted to be, me to become a minister. They saw some, I guess they saw some oral possibility. Like I just talked really well and they just thought, you know, if we could get you, if we get you to believe, then maybe you could get other people to believe. So they tried really hard and uh, unfortunately it didn't take. But ever since then, whenever people are sort of on my street, knocking on the door, you know, bringing the good news, I always invite them in. I used to have a stand, a, a set monthly appointment with a couple people who would come in and. I just enjoyed talking. You know, I'm, I often tell people that I'm a reluctant atheist. I'm a person who desperately would like to believe and has yet to find the capacity to do so. Mm -hmm. And so nothing weird, just always, I've always been open, you know, always 
willing to chat. I debate a lot too. You know, I don't, I always push back on ideas that sound a little, you know, crazy to me, but I always come with an open mind and an open heart, hoping I can find something. Awesome. Well, I was a, I was a Mormon missionary in uh, Sacramento, California, and I, I still appreciated those people that simply, you know, allowed us to come in to talk a little bit and gave us a glass of water. And, you know, we didn't expect everybody to, to, uh, you know, follow the path that we had followed, but, uh, so that's great that you at least opened the door to them and, and let them in. So yes. that's cool. So uh, there's a couple of things here as far as just creating a foundation for our conversation is you, you help produce these, these story events. Uh, what, what do you call these, these events? So the organization my wife and I run is Speak Up. And so we produce Speak Up storytelling events in the Hartford area and other various locations throughout New England. Nice. And these, this is sort of a new thing to me. They, there's one here in Salt Lake that I've been to. And, uh, and my sister-in-law invited my wife and I to go. And I was just like, so we just go and people tell stories. Like it was so weird to hear at first, but I just so much enjoyed it uh, when I went. And we've been a, a couple times since then. And uh, then when I heard your your podcast and I started listening to that, I really appreciate yours because I'm, I'm, I'm a student of of uh, public speaking. And I love just that, that dynamic of standing in front of a room and engaging a room of people and doing it well. And so I love with your podcast, you not only share stories of other people's and sometimes your own, but you talk about the science of what makes a good story and you break it down. Yeah. I like that you use the word science. You know, people often say the art and craft of storytelling, and I think it is more art and craft, but I try to science it as much as possible. I try to break down that process into simple, repeatable steps. You know, I think it's the elementary school teacher in me that understands that large concepts are very difficult for people to grab a hold of. And so storytelling and what I do on stage oftentimes seems incredibly challenging. But when I'm able to break it down into simple strategies and skills and, you know, tricks that you can use, then it becomes much more manageable. So yeah, I teach the science of storytelling through our podcast and all of the stories you hear with our storytellers, they're all working with us beforehand. Before they ever take the stage, they're spending enormous amounts of time with us crafting those stories so that they are at their best when they take the stage. Yeah, I love that. I love that. So I want to jump in and maybe give you a little context uh, from where my audience is coming from. In our church, we have a tradition where we don't have a pastor that, that gives a sermon every week and we just depend on him standing and, and delivering a, an inspiring message. Every week, we, there's various people in our congregation that, stand, that are assigned a topic and said, you're, you're speaking you know, in, in two weeks, and this is your topic, and away you go. And, and then every first Sunday of the month, we have what's called Fast and Testimony Meeting, where it's like an open mic Sunday is sort of the, the joke we, we say, where for an, for an hour, anybody can stand up and, and share their, um, their belief or their faith or a story or, or whatever that's you know, hopefully inspiring. Sometimes we get people that stand up and talk about their recent vacation to such and such place, which is sort of, <laughs> we all sort of die silently inside. Yes. But nonetheless, and then I guess there's also this, this tradition where sometimes you'll even be called out of the, the audience and say, you know, Sister Jones, will you come up and, and share, a, you know, your, your testimony for five or 10 minutes? And there they are, you know, stammering. I don't know what to say. And, you know, they're apologizing, all these things. So with that context, like what, as far as like the basic story st- storytelling principles, like where do we start to begin to understand how to formulate an effective story? Well, the first thing I think people have to understand is what is a story. So oftentimes what people believe are stories are stuff that happened to me told chronologically. So, you know, (laughs) Friday to Sunday is my story. I'll tell you what I did over the weekend. That's not a story. That is just a recounting of events. 
a story is a moment in your life that is transformational or change worthy in some way. I say that stories are about either a moment of realization. I used to think one thing, but now I think another or transformation. I used to be one person, but now I'm another. They have to reflect change over time. People tell great little anecdotes, which is this crazy thing happened to me that's going to make you laugh. But if there's no fundamental change in the person, it's not really a story because it's not going to stick into their minds and their hearts the way something that is truly a story will, something that reflects that transformation. So when we're thinking about stories, the first thing to think about is, am I speaking about a moment in my life that changed me in some way? And if I did, well, good job. Now you're at least telling a story, which is really hard for a lot of people. Most people really believe a story is just, here's some stuff that happened and I'm going to tell you it in the order it happened. And, you know, those are vacation stories. Like when you said, the person who went to the Bahamas, all they're really trying to do is re-experience the Bahamas at your expense. They just want to let you know what their vacation was like. Oftentimes those vacation stories don't contain anything of any transformation or realization. They don't, they don't fundamentally change while they're on the beach. They just want to let you know they were on the beach. And that's why we hate those people so much. <laughs> Yeah. And, and I love this principle because sometimes we can think, oh, I've got a great story because you won't believe what happened. And, and it goes on and unfolds. And yeah, some remarkable things happened, but it was maybe just a good laugh or something memorable. It wasn't necessarily something that changed you. But, and you can't really change your audience with a story unless that story changed you. Right. Well, you know, I like to think of those as anecdotes and they can be very long. You know, I was at a moth story slam last night and I heard some brilliant and hilarious anecdotes. But when they took you know, when they left the stage, I turned to my friend and I said, that's an anecdote because that person didn't really share anything of themselves. You know, ultimately the best stories are the ones where storytellers express authenticity and vulnerability. They share something of themselves that is not typically shared. An anecdote is always easy to share because it's just, hey, this crazy thing happened and I'm going to make you laugh about it. That's easy. That's a, that's a simple thing to do. But to really be vulnerable in front of a bunch of people, that's what we're looking for. And so is there a place for anecdotes then? I mean, is there a purpose for them in, in storytelling? Oh, yeah. I mean, I tell like anecdotes all the time. I don't take the stage and tell them because I, when I'm telling a story, I really want to move people in some way or at least let them know who I am fundamentally as a person. But if I'm playing golf and some crazy thing happened to me the day before, I'm totally going to tell that anecdote. Sometimes anecdotes can fit within stories too. So a moment that is crazy and hilarious can be a great example of something that occurred on my journey towards realization or transformation. So they have lots of places and they can be told and enjoyed. You just have to understand when you're telling them, they tend not to be very memorable and they're not going to make people feel connected to you at the end, you know, which is hopefully my goal is after I'm done telling a story and I've expressed some vulnerability, people are drawn to me in really odd and crazy ways. I am the bearer of more secrets than you could ever imagine. People just they <laughs> dump their lives on me after I take, you know, after I step off the stage. It's just unbelievable. Yeah. And you mentioned this term vulnerability, which is throughout your book. And, and I hear you mention a lot on your podcast. So how would you define vulnerability and why is it so crucial in the story setting, storytelling setting? Sure. So vulnerability is the idea that I am going to share a part of me it is not often shared or a part of me that, you know, I would share typically with my closest friends, except now I'm on a stage and I'm going to share it with an audience. It's, it requires bravery. It requires genuine courage to do that. It's the hard thing to do. And that's why people are drawn to it. What happens is when you express a degree of vulnerability on the stage, you make yourself safe to other people. You have now opened your heart and your mind. 
you've reached out to them and often bridged a gap that exists between you. You may not bridge it all the way, but you bring them a little closer. And so that is why when I step off a stage, people come and tell me their secrets because I have essentially told them my secret. I have told them something about me that they didn't know before that is meaningful, that touches their heart and their mind in some way. And now they're desperate to unload something that they've been carrying for a long time as well. Yeah. And I just imagine, and especially in a church setting and a community of people that meet together every week to worship, that can be a very unifying experience. Uh, oh, yeah. We're open to each other. Yes. I mean, I oddly am the substitute minister at universalist societies, you know, UUA churches. Uh-huh. That I, I went and did some storytelling workshops for some of those ministers. And when they go on vacation, they say, could you just come and tell some stories? And you know, tell stories that are inspiring or may teach us something. And oftentimes I get the parishioners to tell stories as well. And so I am not a minister by any sense. I like ringing the bell a lot. I love pulling the big cord and making the bell ring. And I stand in front and tell some stories and it works well. So yeah, I agree. There's a definite place for storytelling in those kinds of scenarios. Yeah. Now, along the same lines as vulnerability, I've heard you talk a lot about, and I don't know if it's in the book or in your podcast where you've, you've talked about this, as far as like getting emotional when you tell these stories, because if you find stories that are, that make you very vulnerable, that's going to touch a very emotional part of you. And so it's easy to, to start to cry. And it's sort of uh, in our, in our religious culture, there's a lot of people crying up at that lectern with, with the box of Kleenexes that they're, that they're servicing as quickly as possible. So what tips or, or how should we understand crying? I mean, should we allow the, the tears to flow or how do we handle that? I mean, if we're talking about performing as storytellers in front of people, I always say that there's nothing wrong with emotion. I say you should not reach snot bubble level. Like if you've gotten so gross that like, you know, bodily fluids other than tears are starting to come out of your face, we have a problem. And at that point, what has happened is you're probably not ready to tell the story, that you're still too close to it. And so there's many stories where I become emotional, which is to say I choke up, I become teary. I never think there's anything wrong with it. Oftentimes if I am emotional, what that means is the audience is also experiencing a similar emotion. And so if I pause because I need a moment, the audience probably needs a moment too. And it's a reflection of vulnerability. It's a reflection of authenticity. I think there's nothing wrong with it unless you become unable to perform. You know, during my, our wedding ceremony, my wife cried through the whole ceremony, but she never got to the point that she couldn't speak the vows and say the words she needed to say. She just was sort of weepy the whole time and it was kind of beautiful. If she had like sort of just been a puddle and, you know, been gross, that might have been something different, but she handled it really beautifully. And I often think that's the way we should be. We can be weepy, we can be sad, but we have to still be able to speak our truth in a clear way. Yeah. So are there any tactics or exercises to do in order to try and separate yourself from that emotion so that you can tell that story? Yeah, I have a couple. One of the things is some people, when they tell stories, they see their story. They sort of step into their story. And that's how I see it. If I'm telling a story, I kind of don't see the audience anymore. I see what I'm describing. And that makes it especially hard if, it's, if you're going to become emotional because you're going to see the things in your mind's eye that made you emotional back when you were actually experiencing those moments firsthand. So one of the tricks I do with myself is as I'm approaching a moment of great emotion and I'm worried about becoming too emotional, I force myself out of the story. I sort of take an above view of the story. I look down at myself. I turn myself into a third person character and I I watch myself rather than seeing the story. And that detaches me a little bit. I also find the lines in my stories that will make me emotional. 
and I just say them a whole bunch of times before I take the stage. And that can sort of neuter the power of those lines a little bit. You know, it sort of wears them out and turns them into words. Once you're in front of people, a lot of that emotion will immediately come back, but hopefully not all of it. And oddly, the more people in front of you, the more emotional you're going to become. So yeah. if you're telling a story to four people, you're much less likely to become weepy than if you're telling it to 2,000 people. I don't know why. I'm not really a, a spiritual person, but I, I tend to think, or I like to think maybe there's like a lot of psychic energy in the room and the more people that are there, the more that we're feeding each other. But maybe it's just our brains going, oh my God, there's 2,000 people in front of me. I need to be more emotional. I don't know what it is, but it is true. Yeah. I often wonder if, you know, a lot of people in, in, at church will stand and, and become weepy and they'll sort of credit that I'm, I'm feeling a strong feeling of the spirit, you know, the Holy Spirit with me. But a lot of that, I think when you get mixed nervousness into it as well, your body is just sort of letting those gates open. It's very true. I'm never nervous on stage, but I'm one of the only people I know that doesn't get nervous. I have this beautiful blend of arrogance, narcissism, and stupidity that weave a blanket of protection for me. But I'm always envious of the people who are nervous on stage, the ones who are visibly nervous, because when you're nervous, you get closer to the audience quicker because everyone is nervous. You know, when someone says I'm too nervous to take the stage, I say, you're not special. Everyone's nervous. You know, I'm the only one I know that isn't. So stop complaining and get on the stage. But when I see someone really nervous, I just know people automatically their hearts go out to that person. Yeah. And I never get that. You know, I always have to sort of win them over. I don't have them right in the palm of my hand, right from the start of my story. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, you do a lot of your workshops for some churches and ministers. I'm just curious, any specific tips or guidance or questions that you get from ministers, those that are standing in, in churches and, and uh, giving the storytellers stories in, the, in that setting? We do an enormous amount of conversation around how much should you share as a minister, a rabbi, a priest about your own life. And essentially, it tends to fall down as I am on one side saying, you should share lots of your life. And they tend to be telling me, we should be sharing the scripture. Mm -hmm. And I get in those fights with religious folk. My argument to them, and I usually win them over, is that no one really cares about the scripture unless the person delivering it is a person of, you know, meaning, a person who we feel connected to a person who we trust, right? If it's really just about the scripture, eventually you can be replaced by a robot, a very lifelike robot that can deliver scripture. And that's not what anyone ever wants. You know, it's why most of the time people don't go home and read the Bible for pleasure. You know, it is just, it's not the most entertaining thing to do. But if you get someone who you care about, who you know something about, who you deeply feel connected to, and then they say, listen, you know, let's talk about this chapter and verse because it means something to me. Then I think, oh, well, if it means something to her, it might mean something to me too, because I know a lot about her and I kind of feel like I'm in the same realm as she is in. And so yeah. that's the arguments that I have with them all the time. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with you that, you know, the, the spiritual messages can be powerful in a church setting, but we can't really hear them or connect with them until we connect with the, the presenter, the person that's, that's giving them. And right. I think it's easy for, uh, you know, we have a, a bishop or a priest or pastor to, to feel like I need to, sh I need to set an example of, of what a good, you know, churchgoer looks like. And so I don't want to open the door to some of those vulnerable moments where I was weak, but then those parishioners really don't have anything to connect with to say, this guy gets me, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I always tell them, 
we don't want to hear your success stories. Nobody ever really wants to hear your success stories. That's called bragging, and that's no fun. What we really want is I would love to hear a priest or a rabbi talk about the time that they failed miserably or did the thing that they shouldn't have done and managed to get through it and come out on the other side okay. But they're so afraid to do it. I worked with 13 rabbis once that were sent to me because they were deemed boring by their congregations. So they were already angry about the fact (laughs) that they were with me. And we were in the woods on a weekend retreat, you know, and all the amenities were gone too. We were in these like rustic cabins. And I fought them tooth and nail all day long on the idea that we need to share about ourselves. And it wasn't until I got them around a campfire and they all got drunk on whiskey with me. And they started (laughs) telling me hilarious funeral stories about funerals gone wrong, terrible mistakes they made during funerals. You know, one rabbi had talked about how he had to dig the body up because he had accidentally left a ring on the dead woman's finger and he needed to get the ring back. So he and a friend unearthed the body and took the ring off in the middle of the... Those are great stories. And the next morning when they were all sober again, I explained to them, I said, my wife is Jewish. I've never felt as connected to the Jewish religion as I did last night, listening to you talk about your failures. That is when I felt truly, oh, they're regular people. That a rabbi is just a regular person who fails and trips and falls and then gets back up and hopefully takes the right path. And so I won over most of them through that. And that's, I think, the truth of trying to get people to listen to you, to move them, to inspire them. You have to be real and you have to do the brave and the courageous thing, which is to admit that you're not perfect. I love that. The great advice. Another aspect I see a lot in our, in our uh, cultural tradition is, you know, every six months we have these worldwide general conferences where our, the leaders top in our, in our church will, will speak and it's broadcast and people can watch it online and all, all over the world. And, and some of them, I mean, they, they've been speaking for years, they're very accomplished orators and, and they do great. And some of them tell great stories. And, and oftentimes, we'll take a talk and we will want to study the principles and doctrines in that talk in a, in a Sunday service. And so someone may be assigned a specific talk to address in, on, in our Sunday services. And a lot of times people hear a story that someone told that was so good that they sort of rehash it. And so what, what should we understand about uh, using our own stories versus using other people's or borrowed stories? Right. So... You know, whenever you can, I say you should be telling your own story because telling your own story is the only way to be vulnerable and authentic. You know, if I was to tell you the story of my grandfather and something that he did 40 years ago, there's no vulnerability required. There's no courage for me to stand up and share my grandfather's story other than perhaps some nervousness about standing in front of people. You wouldn't be as attracted to that story as you would be attracted to the story that I am telling. It's just the truth is... yeah. You know, second person stories are a lot harder to tell. And so there is value to it. I mean, obviously, we don't want to just throw away history because those people are dead and they can't tell us about their lives anymore. That doesn't make any sense. But whenever you can tell your own story, I think that's incredibly important. I work with a group called Voices of Hope, which is we try to keep the stories of the Holocaust alive by I work with the children and the grandchildren of Holocaust survivors. Oh, wow. And so what they end up doing is they tell their own story. But in the midst of telling the story of their life, they embed the history of their parent or their grandparent. Not the whole story, but a section of their experience during the Holocaust. And it ends up being really powerful because the person on stage is telling their own story, being authentic and vulnerable, connecting to people, even adding some humor because they're telling the story of their life which can have humor, 
But at some point, they're going to dip into the past and talk about how the experiences of their parents or their grandparents have influenced who they are now as human beings. That's the best way to do it, I think, if you're looking to tell someone else a story, is to also tell your own and to connect the two together. Mm, Love that. I think that's a great tip. Great tip. So as far as improving storytelling, you have a ver- various exercises and practices you do. One that I've uh, started doing myself, which is uh, homework for life. Maybe describe this concept and how homework for life works. Sure. It's the most important thing I think I talk about with people. I always say that I would rather hear the right story told poorly than the wrong story told well. And homework for life will help you find the right stories. It'll also allow you to be a person who has a multitude of stories, which is wonderful because When you become one of those people that always has something good to say, people are just going to be drawn to you. And when someone asks you a question, you can always tell a story. And that's a beautiful thing. So it's simple. It was born from the fear that I had that I would run out of stories to tell on stages. I made a big, long list of all my stories. And I realized this list is finite. I'm going to be in trouble. And so I was the first person to sort of do this homework assignment. At the end of every day, I decided before I went to bed, I was going to ask myself, what is the most story-worthy moment from my day? Which is to say, what is the moment from this day that has made it different than other days? Even if the moment that I ultimately choose is not truly story-worthy, if it's not something I would ever tell on a stage, I forced myself to find the moment, as terrible and boring as it may be, that made this day a little bit different. And then I write it down. I don't write the whole story down because nobody will do that. Those people are called journalers. They're very precious butterflies. They get killed very easily. You know, journalers tend to journal until they find love and then suddenly they're not journaling anymore. And then when that person breaks up with them, suddenly they're journaling again. I don't want that to happen to people. So all I do is I take an Excel spreadsheet. It's two columns. The first column is the date. And then that B column, that second column is stretched to the end of my computer screen. And in the B column, I write down the story, which only allows me to write three, four, maybe five sentences. I'm just capturing a moment from my day. My goal was find one new story I can tell per month. But what happened over time, what I didn't expect to happen is I discovered that our days are filled with stories, that we have constant moments where people say things to us or we do things or we read things, we find out things where we change our minds, where we realize something about ourselves, the world, our mothers, our coworkers, or we change in some fundamental way. And it's through that process that I began to see these moments that I used to not see. And so now, today, six years later, it's not uncommon for me to have four or five moments from a single day, four or five moments that I never want to lose. So even if you're not a storyteller, the value of homework for life is you're capturing something from every day. You don't lose a day anymore. Most people, if you say, what'd you do last Thursday? They'll never be able to tell you what they did last Thursday. I always have at least one thing from that day that made it special for me in some way. It could just be my son said something beautiful to me. And that's what I want to capture, which is what parents do all the time. They're constantly saying, oh, I got to write down that thing that my daughter just said. It was unbelievable, but they never do. They say it and then they throw memories away like they're trash. They disregard these days like they're just throwaways when they're really the most precious things we have. And so sometimes it's something someone said. Sometimes it's an angry moment I had in a coffee shop. You know, sometimes it's I read a book and it made me think of the world slightly different. Some days it's just my cat sat on me for an hour and just purred for an hour. And it just brought me such joy that I don't want to forget that early morning purring session with my cat. Whatever it is, I write it down. And then eventually over time, I discover I have lots of stories to tell more than I will ever be able to tell. Yeah. 
Yeah, I love that. And, and the, the convenient thing is if you ever framed for murder, you've got your alibi recorded and you can just... <laughs> It's helped people. There's actually a woman who wrote to us and we talked about it on our podcast. She found a charge on her credit card that she didn't know. She said, this is a, this is a faulty charge. I'm the victim of fraud. And before she called the credit card company, she said, wait, let me just go check homework for life and see if like this might've been real. She went back to the day where the charge was and she realized, oh, that's right. I want, I paid my quarterly taxes early. In fact, I never have really paid them before. I actually had the money to pay them. And these are my quarterly taxes that came off my credit card. <laughs> and so Homework for Life saved her uh, at least a phone call with her credit card company too. So yeah, it yeah. captures days. The other thing that happens is you'll find yourself sort of cracking open and memories from your past that you have forgotten, things you can't believe you would ever forget will suddenly emerge because you're seeing your life in story and you're experiencing moments of real realization and transformation. And suddenly you'll think to yourself, oh, this reminds me of a different but similar moment from my past. And so you'll capture a lot of your past as well through the process. It's the best thing I've ever done for myself. It's, it's amazing. And thousands of people around the world do it now on a regular basis. And they all report that it's changing their lives. Yeah, absolutely. And you count me among those, uh, you know, just yesterday, you know, just give you uh, an example on my side that I was home alone with my son and my wife and daughter had gone to a, a neighborhood activity and I'm home alone. My son's four years old. I'm reading a book at the table and he's coloring and all of a sudden he stops coloring the room silent. He looks at me and says, dad, I love you. And I'm like, holy cow, like this is a moment, you know? And I thought that's my story. And I right. remember I recorded it in my homework for life that night. And, uh, and then it's like you said, it's amazing how it opens up your mind to other things. Cause my mind went to my relationship with my son and then I noted how I always strive to bring parts of my childhood into my son's life and that connection that builds there. So it's, it is such a blessing and it's remarkable what that simple activity can do for somebody. It really is. You know, it makes you feel like your life is fuller. You know, I've heard from people who say things like, I didn't feel like I was important until I started doing homework for life, or I thought my life was boring until I realized all the moments that I'm having. You know, and a moment like that, with you know, that beautiful moment you had with your son, it, you know that if you didn't write it down, if you didn't take the time to reflect upon it, to note it, to experience it, and to write it down, three months from now, that moment would probably be gone to you. You know, it would be lost. That's just what we do with our lives. We just, we allow our lives to pass away on us without taking measure of them. So it's a, it's a process of taking measure, but it's simple. Like I said earlier, I like simple processes. So it is five minutes a day. If you don't do it after listening to this podcast, that's fine. You should just know you're a terrible person. Like you're really, you're failing yourself in a significant way. And when you wake yeah. up sad someday wondering why you're sad, it's because of you. It's because you didn't do the thing you should have done and you should, you only have yourself to blame. Yeah, it, it is. And it's so easy to do. And, and you get, there's a great Ted talk that you gave around this concept that people want to hear, hear more about it. And obviously they can read the book, but, and sometimes, I mean, do you find some night there are some days when you do this? I sometimes feel like I'm just mailing it in like, well, I interacted with this random person and there it is. Now I can go to bed. Like, do you have those tough days? I don't have the tough days. But, I mean, I have tough days. I don't mail it in though. What I do is I really force myself to find something. Okay. And I always tell people it's in those days that the muscle is built for finding mm -hmm. stories, you know, on a day when, you know, something remarkable happens, my son hits his first home run that's an easy homework for life day. Big yeah. deal. Congratulations. You wrote down something everyone could see. It's on the day when you go, 
I don't really think I have anything today that you force yourself to say, if someone put me on the stage and said, you must tell a story about something that happened today. You know, I track my whole day. I think every, what was I doing in the eight o'clock hour, the nine o'clock hour? Eventually I find something. It's, that's where you build the muscle. It's not going to be something that it's story worthy. It's not going to be told on a stage. I might not even tell my wife the thing that I ultimately write down because I know it's not much, but that's where you fight for it and you become better at it. Mm, that's great. Great advice. And, um, you know, we all know that person in our life and you're probably this person in many individuals lives that, you know, they can stand in church and, and give a, a talk and they always have a great story. And I just don't have those stories. I don't have incredible stories. So this is an exercise where people can begin to realize, yeah, you do have the stories. You just haven't taken time to find them. Exactly. Yes. I, my list, I think when I started homework for life, I had like 17 stories left to tell. And that's what I was worried about. Oh no, only 17 more stories and I'm done. My list now is 450 items. So 450 stories that I have yet to craft. They're just ideas waiting. And honestly, I haven't even looked at the last year of my homework for life to find new stories because I have 450 items on the list. One of my summertime goals is to actually go back and use my homework for life to find stories because I'm not even doing that anymore because they're just piling up on their own already. And you can be that person. I'm not special in any way. If my wife was here right now, she'd say, no, he's not special in any way. It's just a strategy that I have found that is useful. The other thing to, that's important to remember is it requires some faith that it's going to work yeah. because you'll do it for you know, six weeks and look back and go, this is nothing. I feel even worse about my life now. There's nothing on the page. But you have to have the faith that eventually that lens will appear, that eventually you will begin to see stories It just you know, it's like anything else. It takes practice and it takes time. Yeah. Love it. So let's jump into just as far as let's say, okay, I've been assigned by my Bishop that I'm going to be speaking in two or three weeks. I, you know, I maybe go through this exercise according to my topic. I found a few stories to work with and we're, we're going to begin this crafting process. And one of the, one of the major things, sort of the pinnacle of each story is what you call the five second moment. And this really helped me and I think it helps to bring out that vulnerability because there's a moment in a story where the vulnerability is maybe the highest and that's your five second moment. So how would you describe this five second moment concept? It's essentially, it is your moment of realization or transformation. It's the moment when suddenly something changes. And I call it a five second moment because I really do believe that most of the time these things happen suddenly for us, that the pieces are falling into place all along and we just don't see it. And then suddenly it hits us. It's the moment that it hits us. That is always going to be the end of your story. It's the most important thing you're saying. It is the moment that your son looks up and says, I love you, dad. And something hits you, you know, in your heart, in your mind, you go, oh, that's it. You've got a five second moment. You might not know how to tell it yet. You might not even know what it means, but you know that it moved your heart. You know that you feel differently now than you felt a moment ago. And you kind of know you're always going to feel a little differently now because of what just happened. Those are the moments we're looking for. When we find them, they're always the end of our stories. They have to be because they're the most important thing we're going to say. And so I seek those moments out constantly. Those moments where I just feel something in my heart and my mind and I go, oh, and sometimes it's not good. Sometimes it's like, oh, I'm a terrible person, you know, <laughs> or I, I discover I do something for a terrible reason. And that's true too. I go, oh, but I know I have a story when I feel those moments. Yeah. And, and people can connect with those moments because they probably had the similar five second moments in their life, right? Yeah, exactly. And even if it's not the same, there's often something akin to it. So, you know, they might, have, they might not have been as awful 
in the same way, but they may have been awful in a different way, but are feeling the same way I felt in that moment. So yes, absolutely. Yeah. So what else is about as far as crafting a story? And, and again, this is a science and in your podcast, you really dig into some of these concepts that can make it sound like brain surgery. And here I am trying to have you do that quickly with kitchen utensils here, but we have our five second moment. We have a general story that's going to do there. Anything else we need to consider when we're starting to construct the story? Well, you know, I think the frame of the story is always the most important, which is to say, what is the beginning of the story and what is the end of the story? In storytelling, I always start at the end. I find the thing that moved me, the thing that changed me in some way, that's going to be the end. And then the next thing I do is always identify the beginning of my story, which is really challenging for me because the end is already defined. There's no question what it is. There's a question as to how I'm going to say it. The beginning for me is always going to be the opposite of the end. So if at the end of the story, I've, I've realized something new or discovered something about myself or changed in some way, the beginning of the story has to be when I wasn't that way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I see my daughter in a new way, in a new light. The beginning of my story has to be, I didn't see my daughter in that new light. And that creates the perfect frame for a story. It's the same way movies work. You know, every romantic comedy opens with two people who are not in love. And the end of the story is they're going to be in love. That is, that's the way that opposite works, right? At the beginning of every adventure movie is sort of, we need to find a thing. And at the end of the movie, they find the thing. So it is from not having the thing to having the thing. So that creates a frame for the story. Most people don't tell stories in that way. Most people just say the first thing that comes to their mind. So they're not sort of aggressively thinking about how should I begin? Where should I begin? What's the appropriate place to begin? But the simple question you ask yourself is what is the opposite of the end of my story? And that shall be the beginning. And then you've got a frame and that's better than most people. Now I wrote a whole book. There's a billion other things that I can right. teach you about storytelling, but that is like so great to just have that frame because most people aren't doing anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's uh, going to set it apart for sure. And really, I feel like, especially in our, our tradition, um, you know, when somebody's preparing a talk for, for church, they sort of, they're worried about running short on time. And so they go out and they find a bunch of talking points that they can include in there. And, oh yeah, there's that great story that maybe they throw in there at some point, they sort of, uh, you know, stumble through. But really, if we step back and we take a few talking points, but spend most of our time in the preparation of crafting that story, because the story is what people are going to hang on to throughout that discourse, right? Yes. You know, when I do a TED Talk, for example, I do a bunch of them. My TED Talks are always built in a way that I tell a story and it's just the story. I'm only, I'm telling that story. I don't move. It's just like I'm telling a story at the moth or at one of my shows. When that story is done, my talk is going to be what I want you to take away from my story. Yeah. And so it's story and then a couple talking points, not too much, just a little bit to get people to learn something new. And then I actually end most of my TED Talks with another story or I finish off that first story so that we stay, we start and we end in, this, in a space of authenticity, vulnerability, entertainment too. I mean, I always tell people the first thing in the story has to be is entertaining because people don't listen to things that aren't entertaining. Yeah. So although I want it to be vulnerable and authentic and I want it to be connective and I want it to mean something to people, it has to actually entertain another human being too, or they're not going to get any of that. Yeah. And then when, as far as delivering the story, I see a lot of people just in their talk in general, they sort of need this runway to get started. They'll say, you know, things like, well, thanks for being here. I'm really nervous. And 
or let me tell you the story of why I'm even speaking today and how this person asked me. And okay, well, today I'm supposed to speak on yada, 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 right? But when you're with your stories that you do, and I would get especially TED Talks where it's not just the story, you start with the story. Like it is your, the first word of your talk is the first word of your story. And that's, that captures people. And that's intentional, right? Yes. I want to activate their imagination immediately. When I'm telling a story, not doing a talk, when in the story portion of it, I'm trying to get them to not see me, but to see the things that I am describing instead. Yeah. I want them to forget who they are and where they are. Just like in a movie, at the end of Titanic, we all cry when Jack dies, right? But we know that Jack is just Leonardo DiCaprio. And he's yeah. not really in the ocean and he's not dead because he's already filming his next movie, you know, <laughs> and we know Kate Winslet is already filming her next movie and they might not even like each other and they're getting paid a lot of money, but we cry because we forget who we are and where we are. We're in the North Atlantic with two people pretending to be other people and we buy it. We're emotionally invested. That's what I'm trying to get my audience to do. And so my first sentences are an attempt to get people to start using their mind's eye rather than their own eyes. And I have to stay within story the whole time in order to keep that imagination running. When the story's done, that's when I begin moving. That's when I begin addressing the audience and acknowledging they even exist. But if I acknowledge their existence in the middle of the story, that would be like Jack hanging onto the door, turning to the audience and saying, I'm about to die now, everybody. <laughs> don't worry, I'm going to be in the movie in six months and it's going to, you know, you, you don't yeah. do that, but that's what storytellers do all the time. They sort of break that wall and they deactivate imagination. They ruin the story for people. So yeah, I don't believe in any of that runway. It's all, it's all just an attempt to sort of calm your nerves down to, yeah. to give yourself permission to tell the story. I work with a lot of CEOs, especially who feel like they need permission to tell stories. And I always say, you don't need permission. You just have to actually start telling the story. No one thinks it's weird when you begin telling a story. And yet so many people feel like they're going to feel weird if they just start telling the story, but they just need to do it. Yeah. And I mean, our brains are just hungry for stories and we hear it. We just, we just can't help but follow it, you know? Right. Our brains are never hungry for, so the reason I'm telling you a story today and I'm a little nervous, right? No one's ever thought, I hope he speaks for about a minute on stuff that is meaningless <laughs> to make himself feel better about what he's about to do. Like we never crave that. And yet people spill that out all the time. Ah, uh, we're... Humans are interesting. <laughs> uh, and you talk about in your book about that, because when I listen to your stories, and we're going to listen to one here in a minute, but it sounds, it doesn't sound like memorized, like you're hitting every word, but it's so smooth that I think I hear someone like you tell a story and I think, okay, I got to go memorize this so I can uh, sound like, like Matt when he tells stories. So, but, so we shouldn't memorize. No. How do we effectively, do we rehearse? I mean, how do we prepare so that it does sound smooth? So you want to remember your story without memorizing your story. So rehearsing is good. I tell people never to write their stories out word for word because then be, you become married to those words and then you become a memorizer and that's a terrible thing. When you're a memorizer, people know it. You don't sound authentic and vulnerable. And if you happen to forget a line, you're in a lot of trouble because it's the same. You know, I used to do theater. You drop a line in the theater, that's okay because there's always someone like on stage with you or just, just behind the curtain who can yell out your word, give you a whisper. But when you're alone on a stage or, you know, in front of your church, no one knows what your next line is. So no one can ever help you. Yeah. So I remember stories. The way I remember them is I tell stories in scenes. I imagine them like movie. So whenever I'm telling a story, there's always a physical location. My audience always understands where I am. That's the way I can activate their imagination. If people know where you are, they can see that place. 
And so instead of memorizing words, I memorize scenes. I say, well, first I'm going to start in the living room and then I move to my car and then I'm at the grocery store and then I'm at the cashier and I get in the fight with the lady and then I'm back in my car thinking about what a terrible decision I've made and then I'm back in the grocery store apologizing. And so now I've got my story sort of remembered in scenes. Within those scenes, I will try to memorize transition lines, especially if they're tricky. I'll memorize laugh lines, especially if they're good. I'll always memorize the first three lines of my story and the last three lines of my story. But if everything falls out of my head and I can't remember anything, I can still remember I started in my living room, I got in the car. You know, I just remember those scenes and I can still get through it. I can still say it because it's my life. It's not like I'm going to really forget what happened in my life if I do it that way. So some people sound smoother than others. I mean, I acknowledge that I'm... I'm smooth in my storytelling. I have a facility with language. I don't get nervous, which really helps. You know, so I have that second voice working all the time. I'm telling a story, but I'm also talking to myself Uh and sort of analyzing the response of the audience, analyzing what I'm saying, deciding if it's going well. Sometimes storytellers get there. I have a storyteller I work with who just told me, she said, I got to the place where I was talking to myself while I was telling the story. I never thought it was going to happen. I always thought you were, it was nonsense and you were lying to us, but it actually happened to me. (laughs) But even if that doesn't happen for you, nervousness is beautiful. You know, it's in the mistakes that you make. It's in your stumbles that people understand, oh, this isn't memorized. He's just talking to me. He's just telling us a story from his heart. The stumbles are wonderful because it's an indication that you're not a memorizer, that you're not reciting a monologue. You're telling us something right from your heart and mind. So that's fine. Stumbles are lovely. Yeah. And so... I would imagine so when you're when you're up there giving a story, uh, telling a story, even though you're you're experienced and everything. Sometimes you'll think, "Well, there's three lines that I slipped in there because they felt right. I didn't expect that, but it sort of works." And you move on. Yes, or I hear the audience laugh at something that I didn't think was funny, and then I ask myself, "Can I bring that back? Can I reference that later on to get a second laugh?" Or I say something that I think is funny early on, and that no one laughs at all, and I think, "All right, this audience is terrible," and I pull all the humor out of the story. And I start yeah. leaning on heart instead of humor, you know, so I'll do things like that as well. Or the audience isn't responding. So I decide that my eight minute story now needs to be five because I need to get off this stage because these are not nice people. <laughs> so all of those things I can do with experience, but it's not necessary. It takes a while to be able to get to that point. Yeah, no, that's helpful. So obviously we talked about, it's just in general, like crafting a story and general ideas do. Obviously people should, should get the book. I enjoyed every, every chapter and it's really helped me in some of my presentation uh, with with story. But what about the impromptu where you haven't had any time to craft a story? Like, for example, let's say this Sunday I'm at church and uh, I'm called up out of the congregation to come tell a story. I'm walking up there and I think, okay, my kid stopped coloring and looked at me and said, I love you today. That's a powerful story. Uh, Here we go. Like, how do we begin when when you have a general idea of what, because you've been doing your homework for life, you grab one of those stories mentally and you say, I'm going to tell it. How do you go from there? Well, I still do those same things that I described. So, you know, your son says, I love you while coloring and it means something to you. You have to immediately ask yourself, why is that an impactful moment for me? Right. So, and I always say the first answer to that, why is not the real answer. It's only the easy answer. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's always the case. Why do I do this? Oh, because of this. That's not really it, Matt. You haven't dug deep enough. So As I'd be walking up, I'd be thinking, all right, I want to tell them about my son coloring, said I love you to me. What does that mean to me? If you can find what it means, now you have your five-second moment. And then you just ask yourself, well, what's the opposite of that, right? 
he moved me when he told me he loved me because, oh, because my father didn't say I love you enough to me when I was a kid. And so now my son is saying it spontaneously. Mm-hmm. Ah, there's my story. So whatever the opposite of that's going to be, why did that moment mean something to you? Identify it and then say, what's the opposite of that? How am I going to start the story? I do that with every single story I tell. Mm-hmm. I do that quick mental arithmetic of what's the meaning? What's the opposite of the meaning? Go. Now, if I have more time, I'll be a little more crafty. You know, Kurt Vonnegut says to start short stories as close to the end as possible. And I believe that rule for storytelling too. So then I'd be asking myself, well, can I get close to the end before I start the story? How close can I get? If it's the case that my father didn't tell me I love you enough when I was a kid, obviously you can't get very close to it. Your story is going to start with when I was seven years old, you know, my dad loved me, but never said it. And, uh, you know, now my son is saying it to me and it has a moment for me. But however that works, that's, I'm always aggressively trying to find the frame because otherwise I'm telling an anecdote. If I don't have that frame, that transformation over time, I'm just telling an anecdote and that's fine. Like I said, I tell anecdotes all the time. They don't require as much thought. Anecdotes are just sort of, here's the thing that happened. I'm going to tell it to you in order and it's probably funny, you know, but not going to move anybody. Yeah, that's helpful. And and so I love that. Just walking up there, you know, you have a story in mind, you know, that the Homer for Life story that you've maybe done recently. Think about the, the, what's the five second moment and what the meaning of that is. And then just like standing in a place of vulnerability, because I think when we're, when we put ourselves in a state of of vulnerability, like the emotion comes to the surface and it's easier to talk about the emotion when we're in that vulnerable state, right? Yes. Finding the why is so important. There's a question I ask myself all the time, which is, why do we do the things that we do? Why do I do the things that I do? And when I can answer that question, honestly, it often brings me to a point of emotion. I just emptied my kid's toy box recently. I went and threw away a ton of their toys, you know, just old pieces that they would never want thrown away that I threw away. And so I asked myself, wandering around, looking for stories, I say, why do I do the things that I do? Why did I throw all those toys away? And my first thought was, oh, I'm anti-clutter. I'm a minimalist. And I said, well, that's easy. That's the first why, right? So then second why was childhood is precious. They're wasting too much time on junk. The less junk they have, the more time they'll have for the good things. And that felt right to me for a minute. I was like, yeah, that's it. But I said, nah, that was too easy too. So I dug deeper and eventually I got to the fifth why. It's usually five where I said to myself, I grew up in chaos. Everything in my childhood was messy and awful and nothing had any consistency and order. And as an adult, all I do is crave consistency and order as a result. That is why I emptied my kid's toy box because I need order because I grew up in chaos. And as soon as I said that, actually, as I just said that to you, I felt myself become emotional. I had that little, you know, it wasn't worth a tear, but like the tear ducts alerted me that they could possibly tear up someday, you know, that moment. Yeah. But it was five whys that I got to that moment. Now you could see I would have a story to tell right now. I do have a story to tell. And oddly, it's just about throwing some toys away, but I get to talk about now on a stage someday, how my childhood was chaos. And as an adult, I crave order as insane as I be in regards to my order. My, it makes my wife crazy. Some of the things I attempt to do to sort of like instill order in our household. It's clear she did not grow up in chaos because she is entirely comfortable in chaos. And I think about her and think, well, you had a blissful, wonderful childhood you don't require order today because your life has sort of been lovely 
You're not like me. You don't see disorder as potentially dangerous. Whereas that's fundamentally my psyche. That's how I feel. But all of that comes from why do I do the things that I do? And I don't accept the first answers. I dig deep. So that's what I would do if I were you with the crayon moment. I would say, why is this important to me? Why did it move me? And I would just keep hacking away at myself until I find the thing that makes me feel like I might cry. And that's usually the answer. Yeah. Wow. That's powerful. Love it. All right. So uh, before we wrap up here, uh, I want to insert a, a story that you gave from, from a stage. It was at, at one of your story events. Yes. Yeah. One of our speak up events. It was also a, it was a story I originally told for the moth at a grand slam. Nice. And the moth for people that don't know, that's another uh, podcast that does stories. And then they have these live events where they record the stories, right? Yes. It's the granddaddy of all storytelling. It's the big kahuna. They have shows all over the country and all over the world. It's where I got my start was with the moth. Awesome. I'm standing in a mop sink in a tiny closet in the basement of a police station in Bourne, Massachusetts. There's no light in this closet and the door is shut, so I am in the pitch dark. It's 1993, I'm 22 years old, and I'm about to admit to a crime that I didn't commit. I first came to this police station about two weeks ago. A deposit of $7,000 went missing at the McDonald's that I managed just down the street. And after a three-day frantic search, my boss and I determined that the money is lost forever and it's not going to be found. I offer to pay the money back. It's my responsibility. I'm, I'm going to have to pay it back slowly. But she says no. She says it's against company policy for anyone to pay back a loss. And besides, she says, this is not the first time a deposit has gone missing at a McDonald's and it will not be the last. She tells me that I've probably cost myself a year of promotions but that I'm a rising star in McDonald's management and that everything is going to be fine. But she tells me we have to go to the police station to report the loss for the insurance company. And so that night when our shift ends, we go down to the police station. The police officer who I meet with, he's an older man, he's tall, he's got steel gray hair and a pot belly. We sit down and I tell him my story. I say on Saturday night, I was supposed to bring three deposits to the bank and only two made it into the night drop. I tell him that what I did was I take all three deposits and I put them in a paper bag, the same bag we put Big Macs and French fries in, so that we can bring it to the rest, from the restaurant to the car without anyone knowing what we're carrying. And when I got to the car, I took that bag and my briefcase and my gym bag and I put it all up on the roof because I had to unlock the car door. And when I reached up, my guess is that when I took that paper bag, one of the deposits slid out. And as I drove down the road, someone got a $7,000 present. The police officer listens to me. He nods. He writes some things down. And then he tells me that I need to go into an interrogation room with him to answer some more questions alone. And my boss jumps in and says, no, you don't understand. We don't think Matt took the money. It's just been lost somehow. And the police officer says, no, we, we understand. He says, I just, it's a formality because money is missing. I have to ask questions and he's entitled to privacy. So we're going to go do it in the interrogation room. And I say, okay. So he brings me into this tiny room. It's got a, a metal table and there's a two-way mirror. We sit down and the first thing he does is he passes a piece of paper across the table to me. It's my waiver of my Miranda rights. It's my acknowledgement that I'm about to be questioned without an attorney present. And he asks me to sign. And I do. I sign because innocent people don't need lawyers. So what am I worried about? And so I pass it back to him and he starts asking me questions. 
And at first, they're the same questions that we talked about before. But then he starts asking me things like, how much money is in your checking account, which is like nothing? And how much do I make every year? And what's my rent? And then eventually he starts asking me questions about drugs. He asks me, what drugs do I use? And if I sell drugs? And I tell him I don't use drugs. I tell him I've actually never used an illegal drug in my entire life. I haven't smoked a cigarette and I haven't even drank a cup of coffee ever. And he's looking at me like I am a liar because I'm a 22-year-old kid and there's just no way this is possible. But it's actually true. I have never touched an illegal drug. And it's not because they're not like around me or even that I haven't been tempted. But I made a conscious decision a long time ago not to ever experiment with a drug. I got kicked out of my house when I was 18 and I have been on my own ever since. And I have been poor and I've always known that there was no safety net behind me, that I don't have parents that I can rely on. There's no family that I can fall back upon. All of my friends are just as poor as I am. Like I don't have a church. I don't believe in God. So there's no like institution that can save me. And I just made the decision that I'm not going to use drugs because if I end up in trouble, there's no one to save me. I'm just alone in this world and I'm going to be as safe as possible. And I try to explain this to the police officer and he just keeps asking me questions about drugs. And so I'm in that room for about an hour and then finally he says, okay, you can go. And I get up and I leave and as I walk out, my boss sort of leans into me and she says, what the hell was that? And I say, I have no idea. I'm just glad that like we are out of here. Three days later, the police officer calls me again and he says, I need you to come and just answer a few more questions. And so I drive to the police station and I go back into the interrogation room. And this time there's another police officer in there with us. It's a young guy and I like him. He is smiling at me. He brings me a paper cup with Sprite in it. And as I sit down, he starts asking me questions. And when he asks me questions, he says things like, no, no, take your time. It's fine. It's all good. And like, no, I get it, Matt. I've been in those situations. I, I get what you're saying. And I'm looking at this guy and I'm like, I like this guy. This is a good cop. Like, and this guy is a bad cop. I am thinking good cop, bad cop. And it's going right over my head. Like it's hundreds of hours of crime drama have done nothing to help me in this moment. And almost immediately, we're right back to drugs. What drugs do you use? We know that you use them. Are you dealing them? I am in that room for three hours being questioned. And finally, they say, okay, you can go. And I leave. And I'm like breathing a sigh of relief that this is finally over. And I go home. I don't tell anyone what's happening to me. None of my friends. I'm just sort of like terrified and ashamed at the same time. Almost a week goes by. And then my phone rings again. And it's that police officer. And he says, we just have a couple more questions. We need you to come in right now. And so I drive to Bourne. And on the way, I get pulled over in a speed trap. And I get a $400 speeding ticket. When I walk into the police station, the steel gray haired police officer, he's laughing at me. But the young guy takes the ticket right out of my hand and says, I'll take care of that for you. I learned later that it was a setup, something to rattle me before I came into the station. And when I go into the interrogation room this time, there's three people there. There's a new guy. He's a boss. And he tells me, we don't have any questions for you today. We're arresting you and we're charging you with grand larceny. He says, but we'll make you a deal. And the deal is this. You admit to stealing the money and we will promise you no jail time. But if you don't confess in this room 
at this time, we will push for the maximum and you will spend at least five years in prison. We guarantee it. And so I decide I'm going to confess. I am going to admit to something I haven't done because I am not going to spend five years in prison. But there's a catch. They need me to tell them what happened to the $7,000. And I know what they wanted me to say. They want me to say, I bought drugs or I dealt drugs. And I would tell them that if I could. But I don't know anything about drugs. Like, I don't know where to buy drugs. I don't know how much drugs cost. So I don't know whether to say I like I bought a gram of cocaine or a pound of cocaine. I don't even really know like what drugs come in. Like, am I going to say it's in a block or if it's a bag? Are there vial? Is there a lick? I don't know anything about drugs. And so I can't say the lie that they will believe is the truth. And so I'm sitting in this interrogation room and I'm just racking my brain, trying to come up with a way to spend $7,000 and to have nothing to show for it. And so finally I say, can I just please have a minute to think? And I assume they're going to leave the room and leave me here, but no, they lead me down a hallway, downstairs into the basement, and they put me into a tiny closet with a mop sink and they close the door. And so I am standing in the dark alone and I am near tears because I don't know what to do. I am standing in the dark asking myself, how do you spend $7,000 and have nothing to show for it so I can confess to this crime that I didn't commit? And finally, in panic, I speak out loud. I speak to a God I don't believe in. I say, God, should I confess to this crime that I didn't do? And as soon as I hear those words spoken out loud, like the insanity of that idea suddenly hits me. I realize like how outrageous and ridiculous this thought even is. And for the first time in two weeks, I am filled with like, I am filled with rage and indignation that I've allowed this to happen to myself. I can't believe that I'm standing in this dark closet with three police officers ready to say something I didn't do. And so I push the door open and I look at that officer with the steel gray hair and I say, no, I'm not admitting to it. And they keep their promise. They arrest me. They send me to jail. And eventually I am arraigned. And the next two years are very difficult. I lose my job and I lose my home and I end up homeless for a while. And two years later, I get my day in court, two days in court. My trial happens and then I am declared not guilty and I'm free. But that moment in court isn't really the, it's not my win. It's not the moment I think about when I think back on my arrests. The victory I really have is in that mop sink, in that tiny closet in the basement of that police station. I'm standing alone in the dark and I ask for help from someone I don't think exists in a moment when I feel more alone than I have felt in my entire life. And I get an answer. I get the answer that I need. It doesn't make me believe in this God who I've now spoken to, but it makes me believe that maybe, maybe I am not as alone as I always think I am. And maybe there's someone there listening when I need them most. Thank you. All right. So there's your story where uh, you just about went to prison. Yeah. Sadly, it was, uh, I don't know if I would have gone to prison, but I mean, obviously it was a moment where I nearly made a terrible mistake. Yeah. And one that, uh, like you talked about, you're sort of this uh, 
willing atheist that you, you truly do have a desire to believe. And these are one of those moments where you sort of look to a, a divine being for, for some help. Yeah. You know, sort of spontaneously, you know, it's that beautiful moment. I think about it all the time, that moment in the closet. I think about how, you know, maybe, maybe if there is a God, he or she is benevolent enough to actually be willing to help someone who can't find the faith to believe in them in the first place. Yeah. And, I, and I'm a teacher, I'm an elementary school teacher, and I like to think that I am the same way for my students in that they may not have the faith that they can memorize their multiplication facts, but I have the faith in them and that's going to be enough. I believe in them even if they don't believe in me. That is sort of like the relationship I like to think I have with a God if that God exists. Yeah. So just off the top of your head, just quickly label like the different structures and parts that we've talked about, everything from the five second moment to those being vulnerable and so forth. Sure. You know, the story is interesting because originally I didn't want to tell it because I thought it was just an episode of Law and Order. It was just me getting interrogated and getting arrested and almost confessing. But so the story was interesting in that I wasn't going to tell it for a long time because I didn't think it had a five second moment. I really thought it was just a series of interrogations that led up to a potentially stupid mistake on my part. And one of the moth producers actually knew about the story. She knew that that had happened to me. And she said, it doesn't mean anything to you. You don't have any moment at all. And it just hit me. I thought, oh, that's right. The reason I didn't confess. And she said, what was the reason? And I said, I called out to God. And um, as soon as I heard the words, I realized how crazy it was. And she said, but you don't believe in God. I said, I know. Isn't that crazy that like maybe I got an answer? And that's how the story came about. So, you know, I began the story at the end, which is the moment in that closet where I call out to God and get an answer that perhaps I need. And once I have the end, I have to find the beginning. I ask myself, what's the closest I can get to the end? And it's the moment I step into the police station for the first time is essentially the beginning of that story. And it's in those beginning moments that I'm trying to lean on the idea that I'm alone, that I'm being sort of thrown into the lion's den without any help at all. I don't have parents or friends. My boss is there for a moment for me, but she's quickly out of the picture. I'm trying to start the story in a place where I am alone and there's no one there to help me. And at the end of the story, I think I'm alone and there's no one there to help me, but it turns out maybe there is someone to help, to help me after all. So that's the frame that I create in the story. Yeah. And then I tell the story in scenes. So it is a series of three interrogations, essentially. Each one of those moments is three interrogations and the last one is not really an interrogation, it's a threat. There's a bit of humor that I like where I, you know, I let people know, I don't actually know how drugs come. Like that always makes people laugh, but it's true. I, you know, I've never used an illegal drug in my life. So, you know, if you ask me right now to go buy an illegal drug, I would have no idea how to do it or where to go. Even I'm to this right there day. With you. Yeah. So, um, it's good to make people laugh near the end of your story when things are about to get really dark too. Yeah. But that's essentially what I did was I, at the beginning and the end, the three scenes, once I knew, once I knew what was going to happen in that closet, the rest of the story fell right into place because there's not a lot of decisions to make in that story. I just, I go back to the police station and it gets progressively worse each time. And I want people to understand what it's like. So I give some specificity, but I don't give too much. I don't want them to have to use my words to create their pictures. I really want to just have them imagine what an interrogation room looks like because they kind of all know what one looks like because we've all seen an interrogation room on television. And so just put me in that room. So I don't give them a lot of details. I just, I give them enough to place me in a spot at all times. Yeah. No, I love that. And one thing I wanted to insert here is that 
a lot of people can hear that story and be like, well, yeah, of course that's an awesome story. Like I've never been accused of a crime, you know, but I would encourage people to go to your YouTube channel and, and we'll link to this. But one of my favorite stories you tell is about a simple time that you walked your dog in the middle of the night. Like it's a yeah. very like everyday, like plain context and experience, but you turn into this like emotional story that had me crying by the end. It's so powerful. So I think there's so much to learn from, from how you approach these things that it doesn't have to be, you know, you have this other story where you almost, that you die and they bring you back to life after a car accident. Like, yeah, incredible story. But uh, you also have many others that are, the premise is very simple and you yes. help it. The simple ones are the ones I prefer to tell. Some of my storytelling friends can't believe I haven't told the story of the trial that followed that arrest because it'd be an amazing story to go on trial and win the trial for a crime you didn't commit. But I've avoided that story because it's a big story and big stories like the one that we just listened to, they're harder to tell. I much prefer the small stories, the little moments, the, you know, the tiny slivers of life. So people often tell me I've led a boring life. I've never died or been arrested or been homeless. None of the things that have happened to me, but that tend, those stories are not the stories I tell most frequently. They're not the stories that people love the most and they're not the stories that I love the most. I really like small slivers, tiny moments from our lives. Those are the best to tell. Yeah. Love that. Great advice. So uh, I got one more question for you, but uh, before we do, uh, how can, how can people find more about you or follow your, your podcast and your, and uh, your workshops and everything like that? Sure. So our podcast is called speak up storytelling. So you can get it wherever you get podcasts. It drops every Monday. It's my wife and, myself and we each week we play a story from our show and like you said we critique it so you can learn about storytelling and get some entertainment in the process so you can find that everything else you can find at matthewdix.com links to my novels links to story the links to my youtube channel if you want to watch some of the stories that i tell we have lots of recordings of them so if you go to my website or if you just search youtube for my name you'll find lots of my stories there as well cool and the uh, last question I have is, uh, as you have ventured into uh, this world of storytelling and trying to develop yourself as a, a better storyteller, how has that made you a better individual in society? <laughs> well, I mean, one of the great things is I always have a story to tell, and that's really useful when I'm standing in front of 22 fifth graders and I need them to understand how to become better people or someone comes to me and asks me for marital advice because they're struggling with their husband. If you're a person who has collected stories and you have them at the ready, you know, if you've just thought about them and, and told them and have them sort of locked into your mind and heart, you're able to quickly help people by offering a perspective on your life that you now have. If you haven't found stories, if you're a person walking around saying nothing's ever happened to me, I don't have any good stories to tell, when someone needs you, you're much less likely to have something that can connect to someone. You can't be as vulnerable and authentic if you have nothing to say. So I think the best benefit for me has been finding so many stories in my life, crafting them and learning how to craft them so that when I need them to help someone else, whether it's a 10-year-old kid or a 45-year-old friend of mine or, you know, Alicia's parents, whoever, whoever is sort of seeking my wisdom or my help or my guidance, I have a story to offer, which often will provide context to what I'm going to say. That concludes my interview with Matthew Dix. 
for sure, go check out his book. It's such a good read and and at least go check out his, his podcast. Subscribe to it. Like I said, I literally don't miss an episode because I appreciate the stories that are told there. They're fun. They're engaging and, and interesting to listen to, but also to hear his critique after. It's really helped me as I've you know, I've been asked to go and do youth firesides and leadership firesides in various wards. And I've turned to these principles a lot when I think, okay, I'm gonna tell a story here. How can I craft it effectively so that I can really touch the hearts and minds of those that that listen? And it's worked, I've had great success with it and it's really improved my personal public speaking. And I know it can do that too, especially in those tough moments when your name is called and you're asked to come up or or you feel the, the spirit encourage you to go to the lectern and, and share your testimony. You can draw upon stories because that really is the, the key into the, the minds of your audience that are listening. So I uh, definitely go check out his stuff. All the links are in the show notes and be awesome storytellers. And that concludes this throwback episode of the Leading Saints podcast. Remember, solve the burden of meetings by visiting leadingsaints.org 14 and getting 14 days access to the Meetings with Saints virtual library. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.